Okay, hello everyone. This is Dr. Leslie Kernison of Better Health While Aging. So uh, I'm trying something new today. I'm going to post this to the podcast. There's not going to be the usual little jingle um, because I don't have time and it is also going to be unedited. So as you know, last week I shared on the podcast a little presentation that I put together for the Helping Older Parents membership. I do live calls for that group twice a month. I did one last week, so I'm not doing one this week. But I um, got a lot of feedback about the session last week. Many people told me they found it really helpful. And things are evolving so quickly that I decided to record another one for this week. So, and I'm recording slides and video this time, which I will post to the Better Health While Aging website if you want to see those. I don't yet know if I'm going to be able to continue doing these once a week. Um, as people may know, I live in San Francisco. We have, um, we are now under, you know, stay-at-home stay orders, which means uh, my children and spouse are home. You might hear some background noise. I hope not. Um, I have a very small in-person um, practice, uh, so that hasn't changed very much, but I am, um, first of all, trying to support our members in the Helping Older Parents membership. Second of all, thinking about how um, Better Health While Aging can support a larger community at that time. And then third of all, I'm aware that, uh, that at some point I might be called upon to help take care of people locally, because I'm as I'm going to explain today, um, Things are changing, and unfortunately, in many ways, they're getting worse, and they're probably going to get worse for a while before they get better, and we probably are going to experience significant stress on the healthcare system. But for the time being, uh, I can do this, so I'm going to do another one of these today. So, um, so what I want to do in this little session is just share a quick update. It will probably be nothing very new if you have been following the news, but I do have some suggestions related to older adults and families based on questions that I've been answering over the past uh, week, whether in the membership or just for my own extended family. So um, really quickly. Okay, um, so quick update. Um, so the cases continue to grow exponentially. I'm sure you've heard that. So when I recorded the session for the members a week ago, we had less than 1,500 cases in the United States, and now it's estimated that we're at over 15,000 um, in a week. And we have uh, the estimate, you know, as of today, midday Friday, February 20, excuse me, March 20th, is about 200 deaths total to date. So why has it grown by so much? Uh, so first of all, this is something that is spreading exponentially. Um, but also, um, even though we're not yet able to do as much testing as many experts think we should be able to do, we are testing more, and so we're also detecting more cases. Um, cases are certainly, almost certainly, actually I would say it's 100% certainly, <laughs> being underdiagnosed due to an ongoing shortage of available tests. Um, so um, they estimate that for everybody who's diagnosed, there are probably another five to 10 people who have it and have not been diagnosed. Um, so as of, I think, yesterday, now all of California is uh, under a stay-at-home order. 
um, from our governor and many other metro areas are doing something similar, certainly closing schools, restricting businesses, restricting gatherings, and the idea is to enforce social distancing, to close the spaces where people congregate, um, especially indoors, uh, and to attempt to slow the spread. So what more have we learned in the past uh, week? Um, so there's increasing research suggesting that up to uh, half of cases might be asymptomatic or very mild. You know, it's still a little unclear to me exactly what the number is of people who would be asymptomatic. It kind of depends on which, um, which report you read. Um, certainly probably at least five to 10%. It might even be more. Uh, and then some people are having very mild symptoms that basically seem just like a cold. And then other people are having symptoms that are considered, you know, on another front, mild medically, again, means that you don't need to be hospitalized. So that might mean, you know, having a fever and feeling really lousy, but not being short of breath. Um, so I think it's still safe to assume that in general, about 80% um, of illnesses are going to be mild, um, but that, you know, about 20% of people might need to be hospitalized. Now, if we're underdiagnosing, it might mean that it's still less than 20% of people who will be hospitalized. But still, given the way this is spreading through the population, you still end up with a very large number of people getting hospitalized, whether it's 20% or 15%. And uh, we should still expect large numbers to become critically ill and potentially need a ventilator. Um, so another thing that was um, uh, revealed over the past week is that the Center for Disease Control issued a report on Wednesday, two days ago. Um, and when they examined 508 people who had been hospitalized um, at the time they looked at the data, which was probably within the week before, they found that 38% of them were in the age range of 20 to 54. So, um, so this was notable because you know a lot of people were assuming that, well, it's really mostly older adults or people who have a lot of health problems who are at risk. Uh, but here we saw, you know, a fair number of hospitalized people who were in a younger age group. Now, with that report, they didn't say what was the chronic illness burden for those people. But um, it's important, um, nobody should panic. And certainly being older, having chronic illnesses puts uh, people at higher risk. But it's important to remember that nobody should consider themselves, you know, immune. So overall, the mortality risk for younger people um, you know, should be assumed to be low, but some people are going to get very sick. And then, um, you know, in terms of the concern for older adults, and that's very important, very legit. And um, it's, you know, it's good to try to study the data that is available and have a realistic sense. So um, one of the resources, I am going to share resources with this, that I want to recommend to people is the John Hopkins Center for Health Security is posting a daily bulletin with really interesting um, information. And so earlier this week in their bulletin, they sort of reported some data out of Italy saying that the, what they call the case fatality ratio. So the people who uh, had coronavirus and died for the period they looked at who were 90 years old and older was 21.6%. So that means 78.4% of people who are 90 and older, 90 is, you know, 
90 is up there in terms of your immune, you know, the health of your immune system and all that. Um, uh, over 78% of them survived. So um, this is still a very serious condition for people who are in, uh, who are older adults and the older you get, the higher at risk you will tend to be. And it's important to realize that even in people who were in their 90s, most of them are surviving, right? So we wanna remain optimistic for ourselves and for our loved ones. And um, so if you see the slides, um, I shared what was in that health report that the mortality rate was 18.8% uh, for people who were in their 80s and 11.8% um, for people who were in their 70s. Um, and then 3.2% for people who were in their 60s. So uh, most, older, most older adults, even those in their 90s, are surviving. Um, and we need to take this seriously because uh, we still are expecting quite a lot of people, especially older ones, to get um, quite seriously ill from this uh, virus as it spreads through the U.S. population. Um, so also for the time being, as far as I can tell, the assumptions regarding how it spreads still hold. It's thought to be mostly respiratory droplets sprayed into the air when people cough or sneeze, or if you touch a contaminated surface and then touch your face. Um, there's still studies going on about exactly how long the virus survives and on what kinds of different surfaces. And of course, just because the virus survives on a hard surface for 24 hours, uh, doesn't mean it's going to be just as infectious 24 hours later. It will almost certainly be less infectious. Nobody knows really the exact timeline. So, um, you know, people have asked me, should I be disinfecting the mail when it comes in? I think nobody, yes, of course, it's always safer if you can. Nobody knows exactly for sure how much risk you're putting yourself at um, if you touch it with your bare hands uh, soon after the male person has dropped it. Also, I, I see my male people, you know, with gloves on, but of course, you know, we don't know if they've coughed into their gloves lately or not. And um, it's still uh, not really known to what extent children or people who have no symptoms or are very minimally symptomatic are spreading it. So the general prevention recommendations still hold. You should be keeping three to six feet away from others, especially if they seem sick. You should be washing your hands often and avoiding touching your face. Hard surfaces should be cleaned often. Uh, I have actually taken to recommending um, to families and people in my social circle to be sure to pay attention to your smartphone. So right now in our household, my husband and I, when we leave the house to go get groceries or for you know something essential, we really are now um, committing to not taking out our smartphones. Because if we do, after we've touched things out there, we feel like we should you know, uh, wipe them down with alcohol wipes when we come in the house. So um, because a phone is a hard plastic surface that in principle could uh, carry germs for at least a few hours, if not a few days. Um, and so still masks are not recommended for the general public. And, um, and you really wanna think again about social distancing. So avoid gathering with people who are not in your household, that's now been forbidden in California, whether it's in private or in public. You wanna avoid travel and crowds and exercise caution um, when you have to go into public spaces such as grocery stores. Um, there is still no confirmed treatment other than supportive care. You know, there are some trials ongoing 
for certain types of antiviral medications and other medications. It's going to take a while before anything is confirmed. And again, a vaccine is still, you know, probably best case scenario, 12 months away, possibly more like 18 months away. So, so we are going to have, you know, we're going to have this with us for now. There's no like quick bullet silver fix coming. Um, and then we have other problems, which, you know, may or may not be able to be improved over the next few weeks. So for now, there's still a significant shortage of coronavirus tests, and many experts feel like that's a problem um, because we, in our country, we don't have really centralized control of public health. The social distancing measures have been quite variable across uh, the country. Um, but one thing that has not been that variable across the country is that there really, uh, there really does seem to be a little bit of a limit on how much personal protective equipment is available in healthcare facilities and then for the general public. So for healthcare facilities, you know, they should be wearing um, face masks and gloves and gowns. And um, those are really coming into short supply. So here in California, we had nurses for Kaiser protesting yesterday because they feel like they're not being kept safe. And I completely feel for them. Uh, I am not employed by a hospital. So for the time being, I'm not required to work in one, but my friends are working in them. And yes, they're concerned about, um, about shortages um, for sure, I think the difficulty is that um, I don't think it's very easy right now for the healthcare facilities to pr procure more. Um, and um, so hopefully that's being worked on at you know higher levels and that will be addressed soon. So what's the projected outlook? I've had a lot of people ask me, what do I think is going to happen? What should we be expecting? So from an epidemiology and public health perspective, um, you know, they had the projections of exponential growth. And the thing about it is exponentially, you know, you have, you have two cases at the beginning and then they double in three days and then you have four cases. And, you know, so for a while the level is still, the absolute level is still quite low and then it starts to shoot up. That's what they've seen in other countries. That's what's starting to happen here. And we did start social distancing relatively late, certainly, you know, mostly later than many experts wanted us to. Uh, the hope is still that by imposing um, and observing the social distancing interventions uh, right now that we're going to slow down transmission and still flatten that curve somewhat. And even if we flatten it, the cases are going to continue to climb over the next several weeks. And we will almost certainly experience overload of the healthcare system as cases grow. So even the sort of more optimistic scenarios are still going to put a really high load on the healthcare system. And unfortunately, what it looks like from data in other countries is that mortality rates go up when the cases are very concentrated, and they think that's because the system gets overloaded. Um, so uh, right now, as far as I can tell, you know, the peak is kind of anticipated for May and June, depending on the part of the country. So, so that's a sobering truth, but there it is. Um, the other thing to realize is that experts are now projecting that once we relax the social distancing, cases will go up again. So, so not only should we expect to be living with these circumstances for um, really, I would say, the next few months, but um, that things... Uh, 
things will get better, and then there is a fair chance that the cases will resume going up. So that's either because we'll relax the social distancing and people will be uh, clustering again, and that's going to boost up transmission, and that's going to be an issue until we can get a vaccine, or until enough of the population, you know, until you get to the point where you've really had 70 to 80 percent of the population who's had it, and hopefully that gives them some immunity, and then there's just not that many new people for the virus to catch. Um, so that's really likely to happen. People have also sort of asked, well, will you know, will it will it die down with the summertime? as some viruses do, and it might, but then it could come back in the fall. And of note, that's what happened with the 1918 influenza pandemic that you've probably all heard about. It got worse um, It got worse in the fall after a lull in the summer. So, you know, so people are increasingly saying, you know, it's not just that we're gonna flatten the curve and go through one curve, but that we should really be prepared for some additional ups and downs after the one we're currently in. Now. Each one will hopefully, is expected to be more manageable. Uh, more manageable because there will be fewer people who've never been infected who are novel and who will be getting sick. And also because by then we should have uh, ramped up our healthcare capability and we'll all just be kind of more prepared and equipped to react if cases start rising again. So specific to older adults, um, uh, the recommendation is that older adults in particular um, observe social distancing and avoid travel. That's certainly my personal recommendation um, to, uh, to older adults uh, if it's at all feasible or possible for them. And then as I'm sure you know, many residential facilities have closed to visitors and also hospitals are often closing to visitors. This is really hard on families. Um, whether it's in the hospital or residential facilities, I understand why they have to do it. Some people have asked, well, why do the employees get to keep going in and out? Um, well, because, you know, the employees are really like, their presence is absolutely necessary in the facility for the facility to function. Now, of course, you know, in many facilities, family are doing quite a lot to care for their, their aging parents. So it's a, it's a heartbreaking and difficult um, situation. And I think it's likely still to continue, certainly as we try to flatten this initial curve that we're going through right now. Um, I know that healthcare is trying to transition to virtual visits for as much as possible and everything you know, that's not urgent is being deferred. So most hospitals right now are canceling or really deferring, right? They're postponing elective surgeries. Again, that makes sense. And I know that a lot of um, healthcare systems and providers are trying to transition to virtual visits. Um, so I, I expect we're gonna see even more of that. Um, and then one development that I have heard about, and hopefully it's coming to a grocery store near you, is that some grocery stores are implementing what they call seniors only hours, or you know restricted hours for older adults first thing in the morning. So the idea is that you know the store is stocked, the store has just been cleaned, and that they're going to have a, a time period first thing in the morning for older adults to do their shopping because ideally older adults are going to be staying home. And of course, um, some of them do not have family or other people uh, available to bring them food or getting a delivery service may not feel feasible. So, so I thought that was uh, an encouraging development. How safe or unsafe is it to go to the grocery store under those circumstances? 
I don't know that I can really say. I think we're always going to have to be considering the trade-off between what seems to be a little bit safer um, with um, you know alternatives that maybe decrease our safety somewhat but confer other um, benefits. So, so the same issues I discussed last week, you know, remain regarding frail older adults. Um, so for frail older adults who have a usual daily caregiver, whether that's a paid person or a family member, you know, what happens if that person gets sick or gets uh, exposed? I mean, the ideal is to have a backup plan. Um, and of course, you know, how feasible that is, is going to depend on your situation. It's also ideal if you can offer paid caregivers paid leave because as you know, the economic situation has gotten very difficult for many people. So people are understandably extremely worried about giving up um, any any income. Um, but you know, everybody is you know many people are going to be worried about their their finances. So if you uh, get care from an agency, certainly finding out what the agency's protocols and plans are right now. Many of them have created plans. You know, can be helpful. But I think you know we are going to have to generally accept um, you know imperfections and that it's often not going to be able to keep things as uh, risk-free as we um, want them to. So social isolation for older adults. So again, we are in early days. Now, uh, I am going to add, let me make a note to myself. I'll also add a link. The Institute on Aging uh, in San Francisco has a friendship line. They've had it for many years. It is for older adults who are lonely and depressed and or are suicidal. They actually are certified as a crisis hotline. I think they're the only one focusing on older adults that is uh, certified for this. Um, so I know they've been trying to ramp up their capability to support older adults. So I'll put a link to that. But I think otherwise, we're all kind of working on ways to be creative. I mean, generally, it's possible to remain in contact via phone calls, if you're able to do uh, video calls, if your aging relative has a tablet or the capability. That can be good, too. I know some people are standing outside the window and making the phone call. Um, so we're just going to have to get creative and do the best that we can. Uh, and then, of course, some people are considering, you know, getting their aging relatives out of a residential facility. Um, is that the right answer? It's something that every family has to decide by themselves. But you should know that if you, uh, if you get them out, you know, it's not just for a week. I mean, we're really looking at a few months. So that's an important thing to consider. If you have an older relative who is in assisted living or a nursing home, um, of course you're going to be terribly concerned about them and you're going to want to make sure that the facility is taking, you know, one, lots of precautions, two, not forgetting about them, of course. And I want to remind everybody that facility staff are under incredible amounts of pressure right now. So, um, so yes, we want to advocate for our relatives, our older loved ones, um, and we have to balance that against, um, I would encourage people to trust that the facilities are probably generally doing the best they can. So um, yes, you can check in and try to remind them and think about how can you be supportive because um, uh, 
facility staff for residential facilities for older adults and healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, are among those who are on the front line and under incredible amounts of pressure. Of course, there are other groups of people right now who are also, you know, in frontline situations under a lot of pressure. And so we want to keep that in mind and be supportive when we can. And then, as I mentioned last week, uh, I do think this is a moment to sort of consider, you know, what if your relative gets coronavirus? What if you get coronavirus? I mean, I've asked myself that question. So, um, you know, having um, thought about it and talked about it among family members and with your older relative, if they're able to have that conversation um, with you um, so that when a crisis hits, you're not caught totally surprised and unaware. So if you haven't done it recently, this is a good time to address advanced planning or some kind of uh, post type order, physician orders for life sustaining care so that people around um, your older relative know what to do if there is an emergency. So now I wanna talk about another issue that I've um, been talking to people about, which is talking to aging parents about COVID, coronavirus, and safety. So this has been coming up, especially uh, with families who have older parents who are living in their homes or sometimes in a independent living, but you know, in areas where they're not being uh, restricted by facility staff. Um, so I've had a lot of people reach out to me because they're, you know, quite concerned that their aging parents aren't, you know, quote unquote, taking it seriously enough, aren't observing all the precautions that their adult children wish they would. So I want to share a couple suggestions if that's your situation, um, because I think this is an opportunity to just remember some of the fundamental principles about um, negotiating a conflict with an older parent or um, or really anybody. Um, uh, but it does tend to come up a lot with older parents and their adult children, you know, this sort of tension where the adult children are more worried about safety than their aging parents are. So uh, what I want to say if this has come up is you always want to be careful about telling someone else what to do. That just um, kind of instantly engenders, you know, resistance. Nobody likes being told what to do. So if you've been having disagreements or, you know, this is something that has been coming up, what I have been suggesting to people is to um, reopen the conversation um, or have the conversation, but often people have already tried having these conversations or have had or having these conversations, but really start by asking to understand their perspective and to learn more about, you know, what were your older parents thinking of doing or not doing and why? And try to get a sense of like, how are they seeing the situation? What are they afraid of? And what are things that they want? So maybe they're afraid of getting coronavirus. Maybe they're afraid of um, not being able to see somebody who is important to them. Maybe they're afraid of, I mean, you know, losing control of their lives in general. I mean, there are lots of things that we could, we could posit, but I think just whenever we're having a disagreement with somebody, um, to start by better understanding how they see it and what is motivating them is really important. Um, I think it's also important to consider the older person's goals and priorities, right? So if, you know, there are people who have been lifelong health risk takers, shall we say, you know, people who have often not chosen to do the thing that was the safest or the best for their health. I mean, if that's the case, they are probably not going to start now. 
However, if your parent is somebody who has always been quite health conscious or has been someone who's always been saying, my, you know, one of my big goals is to make it to, you know, live to be a hundred, um, you know, that's different. So it's, it's important to rethink again, what has your parents been signaling is important to them in terms of their life and in terms of their health as you make uh, a recommendation. And then I'm also encouraging people to think if there's a mismatch between what your older parents seem inclined to do and what you want, consider is the issue an information gap or is it a values difference? So um, this may be changing, but um, you know it was known for a while that certain media channels uh, were doing what you know uh, many would consider downplaying the risks of coronavirus. So you know in some cases there have been parts of the population where one could reasonably say that they, you know, really didn't have the ideal information, the information that they would have to make a truly informed um, decision. Um, and so if that's the case, then, you know, maybe part of the way forward, after again, you've helped people feel heard and validated, because that's when they're then more receptive to hearing what you have to say, you know, maybe what they need is a little bit more information, and that might change how they see things. Um, on the other hand, sometimes the mismatch is about a values difference, right? So, so it turns out that your parents may have heard the same health information that you do, that there is a 20% chance or maybe a little higher if you're older of getting hospitalized and, or of dying. And, you know, but there's a values difference because for them, that's not worth restricting their life in their spring, right? So, um, so I would encourage people to, to, to think about that a little bit as they have these conversations. And then based on that, you know, make suggestions for what you think might benefit your parents. And ideally, those should be in line with your parents' goals and priorities for themselves. So make suggestions rather than insisting. So instead of telling people you should do this, say, you know, what if you did this or that? Like, how does that sound? You know, do you think that's doable? Or how could we make this doable for you? And in general, you want to learn what you want to use what you've learned about what's motivating to your parents, um, and um, frame your suggestions in light of those motivations and as ways to help your parents achieve their goals. Right. So if you know, again, like the goal or priority is to live as long as possible, you know, reminding them that these things can help with that. Um, and then my final suggestion is um, is finish the conversation by saying, you know, by thanking them for the conversation and saying, you know, you're glad you had this and saying that your intention is to recap your understanding. So first of all, I would recap your understanding of what they agreed to and say, okay, so what I'm hearing you say is that you're planning to do this, that, and that and avoid this, that, and that. You know, did I, did I get that right? Um, and see if they agree or not, but also, um, suggest um, or tell them that you'll be recapping that in an email just to make sure that we're all on the same page and share that with as much of your family as you can, okay? Because otherwise, I think sometimes people have these conversations and they tell their parents, you're not supposed to go out, you're this, you're that, you're that, okay? And the person's like, hmm, right? <laughs> and then later their parent goes out to the restaurant. I mean, now I think probably in like three days, there'll be no restaurants open, you know, where you can dine in, but who knows? Um, but, you know, then their parent goes to the restaurant and, you know, their 
children are upset and call them and are like, you weren't supposed to go, you know, maybe it wasn't clear that you both had the same understanding, right? So that's why I'm suggesting right now that this might be an opportunity to, um, to write it, not as like, this is what you're committed to, but you know, I just, you know, I'm just spelling this out just to make sure we're all on the same page and that we've correctly understood what you're planning to do and how we can support you. Um, so that would be, you know, a suggestion that, that I have. So to close, um, last but definitely not least, I want to encourage everybody, but this is especially true if you're supporting taking care of older parents. Um, what about your self-care as we are on the upswing of our coronavirus um, curve? So, um, Again, I really believe that your risk, uh, your risk of catching it and of getting more significantly ill from it is going to be affected by your underlying state of health and stress. So I want to again encourage everybody of all ages to, you know, get enough rest. Um, now, it's possible that you'll lie in bed and you won't fall asleep if you're stressed out. So, um, there are, there are ways to approach that. So if that's the case, I would say, first of all, don't be looking at the news um, and the latest alarming updates right before you go to bed. Give yourself some downtime um, before that. There are ways to improve relaxation and sleepiness, even if you don't entirely fall asleep. This is a great time to practice relaxation techniques. They work better the more you practice them. I know for many people, a relaxation audio can be helpful for falling asleep or something to listen to if you wake up during the night and can't fall back asleep. Um, so even if you're not going to actually fall asleep, you can commit to taking certain actions or changing certain behaviors to increase the chance that you will. Um, uh, even though we can't gather with friends in person for the most part, you know, connecting by phone and then getting your walks outside. So we're very fortunate in the United States that as far as I know, we have not been restricted from taking walks outside for exercise. That's certainly allowed in San Francisco, even though I saw we were, we were castigated by Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN for all these people, you know, walking and running along the Embarcadero. Uh, I was really disappointed by that story. I mean, first of all, we took action before our, our, lead, you know, our city officials took action before almost anybody else to try to slow the spread. But of course, people are going to be out trying to get a little movement at 530. If they're working from home, the workday has just ended. People are no longer commuting an hour each way in their cars. Um, and people are feeling stressed out. And I think actually it's really important to physical health and psychological health during this unprecedented time of instability that people get regular outside walks. So uh, I've actually written to the city of San Francisco, but they're too busy. Um, but I think they should close some streets actually to and close the streets, uh, the car streets in Golden Gate Park, some of them to allow more space for people to circulate outside while still maintaining distance from other people. I wonder how they're going to do it in New York City, right? There's an incredible density of people there. And, um, you know, how are they going to walk safely on the sidewalk? Because if you keep people penned inside, that's really not good for health and well-being. So I want to encourage you all to walk outside, but do it responsibly, six feet away from people who aren't in immediately in your house. And don't go sitting in clusters, you know, in uh, the park 
I think that's more a young people thing to do. Um, this is a time to not attempt to do everything for your parents or others, right? So um, we are here to help and step up and we need to pace ourselves because we have um, probably a few more months and it's going to get harder before it gets better. So accept that you can only do what you can do. And I wanna encourage everybody to think about where are you focusing your attention these days? Are you thinking about what you can do and also what you've done already for your parents or for other people? Um, and be very careful about getting stuck in what you can't do or can't control. So if you have paid caregivers coming into your parents' home to help them, you can and should ask them what precautions they're taking to reduce their exposure. You can and should ask them to really clean themselves when they walk in the door. Um, but you are not going to be able to control everything they do when they're not in your parents' home. And we just have to accept that and many other ways in which we are not able to keep ourselves and our loved ones as safe as we wish we could. Um, but even with the social distancing um, that's now being enforced or encouraged, depending on where you are and the other limitations, there are always things that we can do to connect with others, whether that's our parents, our loved ones, or even um, you know our neighbors and people we know less well in this time of crisis. And it's always possible to be of service um, to others in some way. So I think this is a time when we all have to get better at accepting some uncertainties. And uh, I'm hopeful that we're gonna be able to manifest solidarity as we get through this together. I think we're already seeing signs of that. Um, in communities, uh, which I find encouraging. So uh, I'm going to close by sharing just a few resources that I have come across in the last week that might be helpful to some of you. So first of all, um, the Zen Hospice Project has renamed itself the Zen Caregiving Project, um, and they have an upcoming free webinar on resilience online. It's going to be this coming Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, and I will post the link um, in the notes if you would like to sign up. So I think trying that or something like that can be really valuable. And then also something that has come up in the Helping Older Parents membership uh, for older adults who are isolated, either because they're in a facility where visitations have been restricted or um, they're living in their homes and you as family aren't coming over as much to keep them protected. Um, there is a virtual companion, it's tablet-based, called, um, they, they were originally called Jerry Joy, and now they're called Care.Coach, um, and it's a virtual companion for isolated older adults. There's actually a little sort of um, pet figure, avatar, but behind the avatar there's a live person, um, usually in a developing country, that's why it's, you know, uh, reasonably priced. Um, who can interact with the older person, ask questions, uh, show them pictures, and even potentially help remind them about medications and some other things. So um, this is a company I was in touch with several years ago when they were getting started and when I was blogging more about technology. And because it came up for one of our members, uh, or I guess I brought it up when I was talking to the members and one of our members went and signed up and said it was helpful to she was already finding it helpful for her father. I have recently been in touch with the company and, um, and they are actually, um, they say they can, you know, they still have the capacity to take on more uh, customers and um, that uh, usually if you refer people, you get a 20, 
the referrer person gets a 20% discount. But I actually asked if it could be passed on to people. Um, so if you would like to be part of our test group, I'm interested in hearing from people how it works. You can get a 20% discount on the setup and ongoing monthly fee. So that you know might be something that could be helpful to to some of you. And I just wanted to let people know because I know that right now everybody's looking for solutions to um, address the um, the care and also you know social needs of vulnerable older adults. So. To wrap this up, um, this is a public health emergency. It is serious, and things are unfortunately going to get worse before they get better. Um, and you know, overall, we're going to get through it. Um, so I want to encourage everyone to practice social distancing, to stay safe, and connect in you know non-in-person ways as best you can. If you haven't done so, now is the time to address advanced planning and consider what you would want done for yourself or for. Um, your relative if um, if someone were to get very sick from coronavirus but now is also the time to connect with others to take care of yourself to focus on what you can do and appreciate today so I hope you find ways to minimize unproductive worries do keep up with the news but once a day is probably enough uh, otherwise I think it just drives anxiety because we all get to decide where we will put our mental focus during this difficult times and it's spring and uh, even in hard times there is a lot to appreciate so I appreciate you all being part of the better health while aging community and um, I will try to do another one of these soon thank you everybody take care